Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi man wala. Welcome to Safina Saidi podcast. Uh, we've been uh, looking forward to do this podcast on a very important topic. Uh, it's not a topic that you ever probably will ever hear a podcast about, but it touches on so many important subtopics that we need to cover. And the subtopics, let me introduce you to the subtopics uh, before we get into the actual topic and, and the introduction of our guests. So the, the subtopics that we have to talk about is the number one topic, really you could say one of the most important topics in our deen itself, which is submission to the word of Allah and his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Very simple concept, but it's something that comes around increasingly and it's more important, it, uh, it becomes more important the more people grow intellectually, the more they have power, the more they have wealth, the more they have knowledge, the more they want to and feel that they're capable of exerting their will, and the more that a clash with the divine will, which is the sacred law, becomes possibly inevitable. So the subject matter of submission becomes more important the more we grow uh, as human beings. Secondly, the topic of the fairness of the sacred law. We always hear you know, topics like that, uh, things discussed on what's fair and what's not fair, and we have a lot to say about that. Uh, institution building uh, is the next subtopic, but so all of this is around the main topic of inheritance. So uh, it's in the title, and that's how you probably figured it out. But inheritance is our topic today, and we have with us some specialists. We have Professor Abed Awad, who is a law professor and a specialist in the fields of inheritance, and he's uh, put forth a contribution for the Ummah. And this is not just theory. We have a contribution, which is his website, Sharia Wiz, which is uh, debuted maybe a couple months ago or uh, unveiled a couple months ago. It's one of the best websites that you're going to visit on questions on inheritance, but also he's tied it with his legal element, which is that you can actually get an official inheritance. So most inheritance websites, you'll just basically calculate your inheritance. And by the way, a lot of these have mistakes. My dad showed me some of these things. Uh, these websites one time, I was like, there are mistakes in this in this app. It's just an app. Someone released it and nobody checked it. Nobody uh, uh, went over it. And so it became, uh, uh, you know, defunct. And a lot of a lot of these you have to, you know, look carefully at what you're what you're using. So this is a uh, an app that's very important. Uh, it's a website that's very important that we will be discussing and looking at today. Now, before we get into our actual uh, topic and our introduction of our main guest, we have uh, his, I guess you could say, uh, shotgun on the company on Sharia is uh, Hiba Maksud. Hiba Maksud is New Jersey's own. Uh, she's, got, she's a New Yorker originally. She's got a long history. She went from MTV to celebrate Merced and discovered herself along the way. She was uh, one of the first people to help celebrate Mercy. Uh, really uh, blow up and, 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 and become what it is today. She was an executive in the music industry, which is a crazy industry. Alhamdulillah, she got out of that. As, as Billy Joel said, it's really like uh, if the devil had an industry, it would be music. So Hiba Maksud, Alhamdulillah, is there. All of her family, sons and daughters are Safina Society students, so we know them well. So firstly, let's welcome Hiba, and then let's go straight into the background of our, uh, our, our main guest, Professor Abed Awad. So, you, uh, Professor Abed, you are originally from Philistine. 
Born in uh, Philistine. I mean, I, 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 I was born in Inglewood, New Jersey. Okay, so, so, uh, so, so my, my, my roots are Jersey to the bone. Uh-huh. Uh, when I was um, seven years old, my father returned back to Palestine. Uh, and I lived in Palestine from 1976 to 1986. Um, um, so, uh, I'm, I'm basically as American as apple pie and I'm as a Palestinian as Zatar. And by the way, uh, for, for, for the listeners out there who don't know, uh, there's an area in Australia, in Sydney, it's called Lakemba. Uh-huh. It's all, it's all Lebanese, right? Yes. Well, we have our own version. There is this area called Edgware Road, right? It's yes. all Arabs in London. All Arabs in London. So we have an area which is called Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah. Which around it is Clifton. Inglewood is not so far away. Yes. And pa- Patterson is the Palestine of New Jersey. Yes, it's Little Ramallah. Little Ramallah. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so what, tell us about your, your course and your study. How do you become, you know, what you became in terms of... Uh, Basically, I, um, I finished 12th, uh, 11th grade in Palestine. Then I finished my senior year of high school in West New York, New Jersey. Uh, I went to St. Peter's College in Jersey City, and uh, that's where I ate my first bowl of kushari. Oh, because wow. Jersey City is little Egypt. It's it's little Egypt, and it's little Coptic Egypt, too. Little, because, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so uh, I finished my, uh, my undergrad at St. Peter's College in political science and sociology. Then I decided I wanted to study Arabic and Islam. I, um, I took some classes at Columbia University, studied classical Islamic legal text, and an Arabic language and literature. Then I decided to move to England. And uh, I took my wife and uh, we moved to the School of Oriental and African Studies. I think you went to school there as well. Amen. Wow, we have a lot in common already. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I was at SOAS for two years. I did my uh, master's in Islamic studies and a graduate certificate in comparative law. Then I returned uh, to the US uh, to complete my law degree. I went to Pace University in New York and I did my um, Juris Doctorate with a focus on international and comparative law. Then I clerked for a Superior Court judge in New Jersey, George E. Sabbath in, mm-hmm. uh, in Passaic County. Um, and then I opened my practice. Um, so all of my Islamic studies and, and research uh, had aided me in the development of my niche in my practice. So most of my clientele were Muslim. Um, and as Muslim Americans, uh, they have unique language, linguistic, religious, cultural needs to represent them. Um, So I became um, a seasoned uh, Islamic family law expert, an Islamic law expert, uh, representing clients all over the country, whether as a lawyer or as uh, as an expert witness. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, because of of, of a bunch of cases that I've handled that were, I, I had the first um, Muslim marriage contract case that was enforced in New Jersey, uh, Old Atala versus Old Atala back in 2002. Mm. Um, and I had other published, another published case in federal court. Um, and then I started to teach. So I started teaching in 2003 at Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey. Mm. Uh, I teach a class, uh, an introduction to Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, and then I developed a course on um, Islamic banking and finance. And I also teach a family law course called matrimonial litigation, which is based on New Jersey, somewhat some New York uh, uh, secular uh, state state law. Um, so I've been studying and uh, researching and writing about Islamic law 
for the past 25 years. Okay, great. And so you're, so it's basically family and civil matters. That's your specialty as a, as a lawyer. That's my specialty. Uh, estate, uh, faith-based estate planning, uh, Islamic wills, uh, Sharia compliant uh, documents, um, and anything relating with um, the laws of, of Muslim majority countries. I've testified more than 50 times in courts all over the country, and I've written more than 100 reports. So I, I've become a, a niche as an expert in, uh, in the laws of Egypt. I, I just was consulted today on an Egyptian family law case. Uh, ex- being an expert witness is a lot of fun, if you ask me. You have, well, it's in the hot seat. You're always in the hot seat. Well, that's why it's fun, because you have nothing to lose, though, right? You, you uh, just got to um, – the smart lawyer is going to interview you first and make sure you're going to say what you want, they want you to say. You go out there, you give the thing, and if there's uh, the prosecutor or the opposite side, if it's a civil, wants to talk to you first and do um, you know, that meeting, uh, to have a meeting with you first, uh, I actually totally – I did it once, and I enjoyed <laughs> the, the rough-and-tumble of that uh, – the cross examination and the deposition. The deposition. I never the got deposition. to the. We never put. They never put it on court because the side that I was testifying with, their mm-hmm. case was so bad that they um, they ended up having to to not. They didn't even get to me. They got smashed. Oh, wow. They got rolled so they badly. Got rolled. <laughs> and you know about this case. You know Tariq ibn Ziyad's school. Yeah. And how they were basically the landlords and the tenants at the same time. So uh, that uh, issue in Minnesota, but I was uh, the uh, the expert witness uh, at that time. It was like a gift that came. An imam came to me, and he said, "Hey, my friends in Minnesota, they need an expert witness." I'm I'm thinking I'm going to do him a favor, right? <laughs> so it turns out it's a big drawn out thing, and they flew me out, and then they came to Yale. They came to 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 New Haven. We rented out a nice fancy hotel room. Uh, ball, uh, meeting room, and we had a nasty deposition. Oh, I can imagine. Right? <laughs> from the from uh, ACLU, a guy who was from Yale Law School, uh, top-notch guy, and I went in, and I totally enjoyed the boxing match, because what do I have to lose, right? Yeah, nothing exactly. to lose. So Plus, he, it prepared you to deal with the Muslims you have to teach. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it prepared me for other things like Twitter, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? But uh, but that being a being a, a, an expert witness to me was a lot of fun. I never uh, got to go on this on the stand, but I would have. It's logical chess. That's what it is. It's chess logic and it's word games and it's catch you saying something that you know that Absolutely. you're going to contradict later. So it was a lot of fun. Our audience is you know from the you know we have the concept of the Senate and our audience loves that type of connection with the past scholarship. Your work has connected you to many, many scholars of the East uh, and the West parts of the Islamic world and Absolutely. some some big time specialists. Can you tell us about some of the uh, ulama who you are in conversation with uh, regarding these topics? Well, basically, um, my, uh, my, my intellectual evolution is coming from a uh, secular nationalist um, world outlook. Uh, I mean, Islam was always part of my life, uh, but I start to look at what's happening in the, in the Muslim world and trying to understand is why um, is the um, Muslim intellectuals unable to produce knowledge? Why is it that we are muqallidin? Because mm-hmm. taqlid 
as you know, Imam, has both a positive and a negative sense. Yeah. I, I, I mean, taqlid was actually part of, you know, the longevity of a, of, of a, of a system, and actually taqlid could also be in considered like ijtihad. Mm-hmm. But from a, from, from a modern perspective, the way we look when we say taqlid is we're saying, okay, what are we producing in Egypt? What are we producing out of Pakistan? What are we producing out of the Muslim world? We're not producing knowledge. So I started to delve, and, and, and I was, I was a, a reader of uh, Nasr Hamid Abu Zaid, Muhammad Arkun, every major Arab and Muslim intellectual um, of, of the 20th century. And I finally discovered that they, they, they missed the whole boat. Mm. And they're unable to produce knowledge because the epistemology to produce a, a moral-based knowledge has to evolve from within the cultural tradition of, of Muslims. We can't take the multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic system that we have in the United States and think that this method of producing knowledge in our country can work in, in a Muslim country. What holds us together in the U.S. is this covenant of us being equal before the law, um, that we are here to defend the exercise of our religious faith and our diversity. But when you go to a country that's homogeneous in, 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 in yes. one particular faith and, and have one moral and cultural system and have a, a legacy of 1,400 years, they have to build their epistemology based on their indigenous um, variables and their indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started to inquire on other alternatives. And that led me to Professor Wa'al Halak at Columbia University. And I started to read his books. In fact, I started to teach some of his, his books in my classes. And then the big revelation, Taha Abdul Rahman, uh, the, the famous Muslim philosopher from Morocco, who literally is the only perf- uh, philosopher that's creating an entire epistemological philosophical system anchored in Islam. Mm. And that's what shifted me to start immersing myself more and more in studying usul and studying Islamic history and trying to understand that you cannot only read Islamic history from a materialistic political read, which is mm. what Arabs and politicians all read. Yeah. Islam is so complex. And as we were talking earlier, when, when you look at what was the Muslim civil society, and all we hear is about the sultans, you know, um, executing opposition, or all the, the corruption of the caliphs, or, or something. But did they talk about the guilds in Egypt, in, in Mamluk Egypt, where mm-hmm. you, had, you had guilds for tanners, and the guild would control all raw material to make sure that every tanner had a source of income, that he can live. You became a member, you were able, kind of like the unions that we have in the U.S. Yeah. You had, you had guilds for the textile business. You had guilds for the butchers. You had guilds for, the, for, for everything. It's an that insurance. society. Yeah. So we can't understand. So that's when I started to delve into understanding Muslim history outside of just political and temporal power, but looking on the dynamics of the society, how it functioned, mm. and what was the role of Islam, and why the usul al-fiqh, the ultimate objective was to create the Muslim moral subject, that our moral outlook is what drives our life. Mm. It's not the financial gain. It's not, it's not anything except 
that we are anchored in a moral system. Now, Western epistemology produced a system uh, fixated on individual rights, which I b belong to because I'm an American as apple pie and this is my country and I can understand it. But also it has overlooked the moral anchor of what society and what humanity is about. So now we're creating uh, a, an individualistic um, society devoid of a moral accountability or moral responsibility. And that's what we see with the wealth gap. That's what we see with the destruction of the environment. That's what we see of everything falling apart around us and wars and nationalism. When everybody talks about, oh, religion is destructive. A hundred million people were murdered in World War I and World War II in the name of secular nationalism. Yeah. But we, we, we don't want to talk about that. Uh, we've massacred the native Indians and all these indigenous populations for mm, financial gain, but we don't want to talk about that. Well, one of the points that I always think about is when we talk about capitalism, uh, waged uh, wealth uh, distribution, when we talk about racism, for example, uh, we owe, the, the Western discourse is always about changing laws, right? There's no sense of, there's not even a language that can get a person into the depth of the heart of the matter, right? There's not even a language for it. So all we have to do, can resort to is laws where there's no, there's no moral, uh, agreed upon moral source, nor a, uh, a word, vocabulary, that will move people towards fixing themselves on the inside. And there's no justification for it. There's no motivation for it. And there's no method for it. That's the logic of the Western epistemology that yeah. some people are missing. What it did is it divided. It said there are things that are legal and there are things that are moral. Yeah. And they're different. So we just divided the human conduct. So for us as Muslims, when as, as a mukallaf Muslim, a moral subject, mm. you are accountable to God and based on your moral obligations. Not just if something is legal or illegal. So yeah. we can do stuff that is legal in this country that violates every moral value that you can imagine. But it's legal. And that's what justifies Western capitalism as we know it today, mm -hmm. that it's morally bankrupt. Yeah. It's very, very unfortunate yeah. that people are not seeing the big picture. We want, as Muslims, as an American, my father served in the U.S. Army. He's a veteran. My uncle, my father's uncle came to this country in 1917. There's wow. no one more American than me. My religious faith, the, the Quran has something to offer to make America better. We, as a faith-based community, whether Jewish, whether Christian, any religious faith has something to be, to, to contribute on the table to discuss the moral ills of our society and contribute. So our conversation, uh, Dr. Shadi, is about us making America better. It's not, it's about what we can do as Americans to bring us back to fairness, equity, economic justice, racial justice. All of these things are within our religious uh, paradigm and our religious faith. And so well, the, in terms of doing this, there's going to be two elements. There's going to be an element of theory and there's going to be an element of demonstration, right? Absolutely. And uh, you're probably on the realm of the, the theory crossing now into with Sharia was the element of demonstrating that this can work. Now, somebody who is with is always uh, sort of 
uh, with the, us on the ground here is your colleague Hiba. Absolutely. Hiba is the queen. <laughs> she's on the ground here. Uh, she knows exactly what's going on uh, in, in many different communities, in our community specifically. She brought this up to me because of her concern that many people have certain issues regarding inheritance. They have certain thorn in their throat on certain matters of inheritance, which she then turned to the bigger question, which is of submission. And this is a, uh, a good uh, logical way to, to address specifics is to take a step back and let's first agree upon certain general principles and that principle of submission. Now, uh, before we get into Hibba's uh, certain examples she's gonna lead with, and we're gonna talk about submission, if you could tell the twins to that, Dr. Shadi says, tone it down or else, because we can hear them coming through. So um, other, after that, let's hear about your, your whole uh, journey from MTV to Celebrate Mercy to now working with Sharia was just give us a maybe 60, 120 seconds since I already mentioned it. I'm sure many people are really interested. You know, what in the world? How did you be, be a music executive and now you're here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, thank you so much. Um, and just to explain my role is, uh, you know, so I, I had a career my whole life and you know, I worked as a marketing executive in the music industry before I even worked at MTV. I was actually at two record labels and I literally hung out with, you know, artists. Um, and then uh, I sort of like really had a uh, come to Muhammad moment uh, after 9-11 and I really started evaluating my life. And, you know, I was at the top of my game, uh, literally vice president marketing and making a lot of money and it meant nothing to me. And I started to uh, look into, you know, what does Islam mean? And uh, I literally went through this sort of like rebirth in terms of, you know, trying to find myself. And I actually distinctly remember like Googling, believe it or not, it was, it was probably uh, Microsoft back then. It wasn't Google, but um, Yahoo, Yahoo. Yeah. <laughs> I would search um, for things. And the only person who had anything worth of value at that time was uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, and it was Zaytuna Institute. And um, so I reached out to them and I said, you know, I'm a marketing executive. I want to help because the Islam that, you know, is sort of being painted right now in, in, you know, in the world because of, of what happened with 9-11 is not the Islam that I know. And, and I wanted to be able to contribute to that. Long story short is I literally, uh, and there's miracles, miracles along the way, but I, I got led into uh, starting to volunteer for a Muslim organization. And, and then it led me to my job uh, at Zaytuna in which I was actually the uh, marketing executive there for almost five years and I was also the um, adm admin for Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, uh, Dr. Uh, Hatem Bizian and uh, Imam Zaid Shakur and I'm actually still his admin and uh, from there you know because it was a little intense to work for Muslim organization which I believe the music industry prepared me for <laughs> I uh, started becoming a consultant because what I realized was a problem was actually reaching Muslims. Um, so I've been a consultant for about two and a half years. And to just sum it up for you, I spend a lot of time 
reading and trying to understand how Muslims think and how to reach them, American Muslims. Um, and alongside that, I've actually been educating myself. So for the last 10 years, I've been fortunate enough to have been exposed to some of the best traditional teachers uh, the entire world has to offer because I even have overseas offer uh, teachers such as Ustad uh, Najiba and Imana Sidki, who, you know, she's here, but she, her origins were Saudi Arabia. Um, Dr. Shadi, of course, you know, multiple teachers, I could, I could name all of them. Um, but what I have really started to learn was, you know, it's it really about uh, becoming smart enough to understand how stupid you are, how, how you don't really understand everything in Islam. And uh, that, that was really important for me to, you know, come to terms with. When, when Abid approached me to do this project, by the way, by the way, I didn't know him at all. He didn't know me. And I even asked him, how did you find me? And he was mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I just, he literally, he'll tell you the story. He just went on looking for a marketer and, and somehow I just came to him. And when he approached me, I had, you know me, Dr. Shetty, because you've asked me many times to, to help you. And I'm like, no, I'm not working right now. Yeah. Um, but I just felt like this was the right thing to do. And when he first told me he's going to basically try to convince American Muslims to follow Sharia law, I was like, wow, that's challenging. Okay, let's do it. So, you know, I've actually uh, likened the difficulties that I had in the music industry, being a woman, being a hijabi, I was a hijabi in the music industry, and, um, and dealing with a lot of egos, the perfect backdrop to, you know, taking on this challenge of convincing people to listen, to educate themselves, and to humble themselves into following a fard and a directive from their Lord. You talked about people uh, talking to you, telling you that they have a big problem with certain ahkam sharia, but you said you were taken aback because they pray, they go to mosque, they eat halal food, mm -hmm. and then they're telling you, and they're explicitly saying, I have an issue mm -hmm. with something, and you're like, hold on a second, it's in the Quran, the same Quran you recite every salah. Yeah, so that, that was one of the things that intrigued me myself, right? So, you know, when Abid first... Uh, asked me to understand the product, you know, which is, you know, that's also part of my skill set is I've, I've, I've actually been in the digital industry for years. When I worked at MTV, they were literally the first company to come out with e-commerce. We're talking like this was before Amazon, you know, had anything other than books. They had just started launching CDs. They actually had a, a mini store called CD Now and MTV decided before Apple, literally to come out with a store uh, with a, a, a player to sell digital ringtones and digital music for a dollar. And it was considered avant-garde back then. Um, but you know, w when you actually study digital products, it's really about usage. It's the architecture of how people think and how they you know, utilize. And the mistake that MTV made at that time was that they didn't understand that the usage was about the player. It wasn't the music itself. Mm. Steve Jobs figured that out, and that's how he became successful. Um, so even though we were first to market, we actually didn't you know, become successful in the digital space. But we still successful in the television space uh, because they then transformed the company to be data-driven. When Abbott first told me about Sharia Wiz, the first thing I did was I looked into the actual 
you know, the, the fiqh, right? The, the rules of, of what Islam says. And he, he invited me to read white papers, stories, you know, what scholars had said. Um, and by the way, one of the, the scholars I, I really admired and we wound up actually doing a demo for was Dr. Hatim al-Hajj, who, you know, Dr. Yasser Qadi says is his teacher. And he's of Hanbali, uh, his madhab is Hanbali. And, and he also, you know, schooled us, walked us through some rulings. So I've learned a lot along the way. So I felt really empowered when I start, when the product launched literally just two months ago, and I started asking my friends, hey, you know, this is a fard, it's in Surah An-Nur, like there's no doubt in my mind, you should do this. When they first used the calculator, they wholeheartedly rejected it. Literally, I don't have a single friend. And, and I'm talking like, I'm just being honest. I know some of them are going to listen to this, but like, they literally were like, no, I, I, I don't want to follow this. And I was like, but why? They're like, because it just, just doesn't make sense. And um, I, I find this really hypocritical because there are so many other things in Islam that we just like, we just accept and we, you know, want to slash and burn, you know, in particular with issues pertaining to women. I find like hijab is always a hot topic for some reason that every man wants to chime in on and, and every woman too. But, you know, it, it's not actually that much that detailed in the Quran, right? Like really hijab is not detailed in the Quran. It's just a directive, but it's not detailed. But Allah doesn't tell us, you know, you know, you have to be covered this way and this time. He doesn't. He just says cover. And then the rest is, you know, through our uh, hadiths and, and traditions. But with regards to inheritance, it's 100% detailed. It's actually so detailed that we developed an entire calculator around it. Yeah. And every single medheb, every scholar in that medheb, you know, looked at it, reviewed it, and authorized it as being authentic. So there's no question that this is the truth. And yet, for some reason, most of Americans don't want to accept it. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, you tell people, you talked about, you know, people wearing hijab, uh, and that's not exactly that detailed. So we, we, we take it from the sunnah, and it's passed down by almost mm -hmm. tawatur, right? But um, so they recognize we don't own the body. Because Allah is telling you, don't tattoo yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Cover this, wear this, do this with your body. You can't, you know, uh, have sex with who you want to. You have to get married first. You can't ingest into your body what you want to. You have to make sure it's not khanzir or khamr, for example, right? So they recognize that you don't own your body. Yet they have a big problem with the idea that you don't own your wealth, right? Yeah, yeah now, this, it, was, this was another thing I, I yeah. faced often, that people wholeheartedly thought it was not okay. for They, they wanted to direct where their money should go after they're dead, yeah. And I would argue, like, why do you care at that point? I mean, and, and yet they just saw it as their wealth. And I said, reality is it's not your wealth because Allah can take it away anytime you want. I mean, read Surah Al-Takaf every Friday. He tells you right yeah. there, you know, so, but this was definitely a hard concept for people it's, to understand. It's an interesting concept, the idea of wealth, because wealth in reality, it's a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's, if you think about two facets of it, number one, is the origin of wealth being gold and silver really if you let's let's take it down to gold right that's really the origin of wealth and human beings love for for gold right in terms of money as a currency 
Uh, you could say food is a need, other things are needed. But it's the idea that he created uh, an item and he created a desire. That's the origin of all money. And then money then, you know, we advanced it, we trickled it, we changed it, et cetera. But it's the, it's the origin. Nobody creates wealth. We earn wealth. Wealth mm -hmm. is created, right? So if people transformed it, they transformed it. But that dollar that you earn, you didn't make it, you earned it. So this is the actual logic of uh, the idea that wealth is a creation of a lot. It's not owned truly by anyone. We have the we use the word own to make things quick in our discussions. But in reality, what it is, is you earned it. You earned the right to use it. Really, that's what it is. You earn the right to use wealth. It's actually technically uh, not something that any human being created in the world. So, right? Makes sense. And, uh, and that we're, we are also, we're, we are told how to spend it. We are not yeah. allowed to spend it on, you know, haram things. We have to give zakat, it's a mandatory thing. Our, our, our siyam is not accepted unless we actually, you know, uh, donate. Uh, for zakat al al fitr, and we're also told to be fair uh, in our inheritance, meaning like our wealth is left behind to take care of those yeah. that that are going to be left behind. So all of these things are rules, and I just found it very strange that people would accept zakat, would accept you know the dictates of uh, managing. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention riba, right? Like uh, Allah basically says, you're going to go to war with me. He mm -hmm. says it in the Quran, like if yeah. you deal with interest, like usury is a big, big thing in Islam. So why wouldn't your inheritance be a big thing if you dedicated sure. multiple uh, verses in the Quran about it? So the idea, and I, I want to get to Professor Abbott's take on this, but the overall idea when we talk about submission, the, we have to look at it logically, right? The, 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 op, uh, the approach of submit because the one talking to you has more power than you, it, it's the, that's the, the logic of power. But let's use it the power of logic. When we use the power of logic to arrive at submission, it's the recognition of ownership. Did you make your body? Did you make the wealth? Did you make this world? Did you make the sun? Did you make the air? So you literally, we did not make any of this stuff. Therefore, the one who a Muslim is already admitting who made it, he has the right to dictate it anything he wants to do with it. It's his possession. So that's mm -hmm. the starting point of submission. So Professor Abed, if you wanted to bring some points. Ba ba basically, uh, all wealth is milkillah. Mm -hmm. But, mm. you're entrusted mm. with this wealth during your lifetime. And Taha Abdul Rahman, his entire epistemology, entire philosophy, it's about the that we're entrusted. So you're entrusted with this money and you have to manage it to please the divine because it's not yours. Correct. Um, and, and, and that's where the disconnect with many people that we see, um, that the, the Quran is pretty clear about the fixed share distribution. Mm-hmm. But also, the Qur'an gives you certain flexibility and solutions because you have to look at the variables around your family. You may have a family that's somebody who's disabled. You may, you may have a family in different countries. You may have children that are well and doing okay and others that are not, that are spending time and taking care of you. 
there, there's a, a, a lot of, of, of responsibility and, and flexibility with the Sharia system as a methodology that finds solutions. But you have to be guided by Surah An-Nisa and you work around those parameters. But people don't see that. So from submission, from the uh, submission, uh, as I said earlier, you, you can arrive at submission by the logic of power or the power of logic, right? The logic of power is, oh, okay, where are you going? You're a Muslim. You're, you know that you're going to meet Allah, right? So that's the logic of power. Let's so wake up and realize that or else why be Muslim at all? So see, I can understand someone committing sins, but what I cannot understand and I don't think anyone can understand is how you can recognize a book the book clearly says X, Y, and Z. The imams, all, ulama all agree that that's what it means. And then you openly and brazenly say, no, I disagree. In that case, then we have to say that you truly did not believe that that's a creator. It's a divine directive. A divine right. So, but then you have the power of logic, which is what you said uh, Taha Abdurrahman's theory is. And it's the concept that ultimately none of this is ours to begin with. So he has full uh, authority, moral authority, and Allah does not need moral authority. He's, he's the owner of everything in the first place. So I, I, I was just going to add that, you know, yeah. I mentioned that to you, that I, I had one person who actually verified everything I mentioned, you know, because I, I, I walked this person through all the different ways that you could make seemingly what is unfair um, fair. And because the, 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 the genius of Sharia was, is that, it actually uses hadiths to help customize itself to your situation. Mm -hmm. And these have all been verified by all the fixed scholars in every method. And she still didn't like the fact that, you know, I don't want to reveal the details, but that, that the rationing wasn't fair because in her mind, that person already had money. It was her mother-in-law, to be honest. And, um, you know, it's funny, it reminded me of myself. Like I want to be critical of myself here and say that a lot of times I didn't want to give zakat to certain things because I perceived it as being like, they're not worthy. And one of my teachers said, it's not really for you to judge. It's not for you to judge. If someone's asking you for this money, you have to give it to them uh, as long as you know that they're not using it. So what happened was she actually found an imam that gave her a different fatwa. And I just found it really interesting that she did that because it was like, so all of these amends and all of these scholars and the fact that this was certified by Rakaba, which is pretty much like the Fick Council of America, all of that learned you know, knowledge and every single Muslim country follows the same rules, but that wasn't good enough for you. You had to find an alternate solution for yourself. And it just reminded me of this issue that always comes up in the Muslim community, whether it's like justifying that you can be, you know, um, you know, like there's a lot of women that will just sort of like find the imam that will allow them to do something that is really not kosher. And uh, I don't know why we do that, but this is definitely not one of those situations. Well, uh, speaking of that, and it's good that you took like a sympathetic approach because people do have, they, human beings are developing. We have come to trust our minds. We have come to trust our cultures and feel comfortable in them. And if we learn that something is haram or obligatory that's outside of that, it, there is an adjustment period that takes place. And uh, uh, maybe people react in a certain way and utter words that are like kufr almost, but it's maybe a phase that they're going through. And then slowly, uh, as their trust in Allah settles in their hearts, 
then they will submit to that. So that's the issue of submission. Now, one of the things I loved about the book and uh, that Professor Abed, you collected and you pinpointed in the website certain things from your experience you know that Muslims will have issue with, right? Absolutely. That, and, and you highlighted in a little like information tab at the bottom, what are the ways uh, to address your concerns? So what you did is you separated the lack of submission from the genuine concern. And that's something very important for us to do is realize that everyone who seems to be rebelling against one of the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which we want to get away from that, that does not necessarily mean that they're completely devoid of a valid concern, right? Amongst these, for example, the inheritance of the wife, if there are children. So that's only one-eighth. What's she going to do with that? That's only two weeks of uh, worth of her li of living, one month of rent maybe. But let's, can you give us the top three or four or whatever it is, masail uh, that you felt that, we're going to follow, we're going by the book, but we're also recognizing this concern. Okay. And how you solved it. How did I solve it? First of all, for everybody to understand, is that the fixed shares apply to what is in your estate. Uh, the, the, in, in, in Arabic and from Islamic law, we call it a tirka. So whatever the tirka is going to be composed of, that's where these particular uh, fixed shares that Allah has uh, revealed have to be distributed. Now, the Quran specifically says the tirka gets distributed after payment of debt. So there are debts, costs for burial, administrative costs, and all types of debts and bequests. So the Quran says you have to give your bequest and then whatever is left, that that's what's going to get distributed according to the percentages. So, so that's the big picture. My clients that come to me all the time, I had a, a, a client who was going to Hajj. Uh, it, it may have been a couple of years ago. And he says, um, I heard that you do faith, uh, Sharia compliant uh, wills. Uh, I'm a physician and I want a strict Sharia compliant will. I am very devout said, no problem. He comes into the office. I explained to him the situations of what the Sharia compliant will is going to look like. His wife, who was a professional, had left her career, took care of the family, bore him three children, helps him manage his finances, and she's going to get one-eighth. And under New Jersey law, she can contest and get half of the estate. So there's also the interplay between the, the Sharia and U.S. law. So if you do not want to accept the one-eighth, you can contest the will and take a half. So I said, he said, well, I understand. If this is what the law is, my wife is going to accept it. I said, do you, are you interested in any solutions? He says, I, would, I really would like to find a solution that's Sharia compliant. Tell me what options I have. So that's one major issue, which is the spousal rights. Now, the solutions for a, a spouse is that keep in mind, and again, sometimes we may get a little bit technical here, but in the U.S., up until, you know, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s, most states did not have a concept of what we call the community property or marital assets. 
So, so people say that under Islamic law, there's no concept of marital assets. So if there's no concept of marital assets at the time of dissolution of marriage or death, each person keeps whatever's titled in their name. Um, but that being said, under Islamic law, there is a concept that was not in existence in Western and American law until the 20th century, which is uh, called, um, you, you have a legal and equitable interest in property acquired during the marriage if you contributed to the acquisition. So Umar al-Khattab, al-Faruq, the just, had a situation. See, this is what's fascinating. What we're talking about today, uh, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab was talking about in 670, 60 AD. A woman and a husband, no children. Uh, he passes away. His family says, here's what the Quran says. You get a quarter because there are no children. And we, the paternal uh, siblings and family, we get three quarters. So he goes to the Farooq and says, Amir al-Mu'mini, I am the famous Mutarriza from, uh, from the Mecca. And I worked all night sewing these dresses and I give it to my husband and he would go to the souk and sell them. We worked together. We acquired this wealth together. He says, you're right. I know who you are. You're going to get a half of this for your contributions. Mm. And you're going to get your quarter for... The other half. For, no, a quarter total. Mm. Because he just, he assigned it mm. half for her for what she's done. A quarter for her inheritance and a quarter for the family, the paternal mm. family. He flipped the situation. We're talking seventh century. This did not exist in the United States and in the West until late 19, uh, early 20th century. So why can't we anchor our sense of Sharia equity based on our history? So we gave the solution that if your wife had contributed to the acquisition, you are entitled to identify and acknowledge either you in your lifetime change title and put half of it in your wife's name or acknowledge the moral and religious debt you owe her for her contributions to the acquisition of the marital estate and that will be paid from the gross estate plus she will receive her one eight mm. the doctor was like oh that's amazing this is this sounds very fair and logical another solution is when when we talk about the muslim marriage contract there was a scholar, I think he was out of Princeton. He, he, he wrote a book called Divorce and Dissolution and, and uh, Divorce and Property Settlements in Memluk, Egypt. Uh, his name is Rappaport. And in his study of Memluk divorces, he said when, when there was a divorce, it was financial devastating to the husband because the husband had these obligations. Not only but he had to maintain her during the marriage he had to pay her child support and he had to pay her meskan for the children and he had to pay her her mahir and he probably took money from her because because of the fixed share system that meant that women all the time would own property because when her father passes she gets a share when her brother passes she may get a share when her mother passes she's going to get a share so women were also owned property they weren't moneyless yes. so it was a, a a burden that he had to pay off mm. so the mahir 
is a debt against the estate. People forget this, is mm. that yes, all of us negotiate the mah to say, oh, if I get divorced and you divorce me, I'm getting my hundred grand in my mah. But you're getting your hundred grand if he drops dead too. Plus mm. so your inheritance. Mm. Because the mahir is a preferential debt against your estate. And to, to clarify, you're talking about mu'akhar as-sadaq. Mu'akhar as-sadaq. Yeah, which, which to explain to people is that when, when people get married, they say you're going to pay a mahr up front, and then I'm going to delay the rest of it. It is payable upon you upon XYZ happens, right? Exactly. So al-mahr can be divided in muqaddam wa muakhar. Yes. Um, and um, you, the muakhar is due upon the dissolution of the marriage or the yeah. death of the husband. Okay. And now, okay. The scholars, hmm. and the scholars made it very clear that you're entitled to modify your mahar obligation uh, during marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, you know what, the mahar was uh, was low. I'm gonna I'm gonna up it, uh, wife, because you know you've done so much. Mm-hmm. So I allow you in the Sharia Wiz platform because all these solutions we've automated them and we provide them as options on the SharaWiz.com website, where you could say I'm upping my wife's muakhar sadaq to a hundred thousand or to the marital residence. How many? You're of Egyptian ancestry. The first thing you talk in the shabka, bidisha'a. Where's yeah. my apartment? <laughs> That's my mahir. I want my apartment. It's true. So what's unusual to in New Jersey or in San Francisco or in Chicago that a husband says, I, I'm going to just amend my mahir and my mahir is going to be the, a house. And this mm. is the house that we live in. That's legitimate. And that would be wife will get the house plus her one eighth. And another third solution. Again, it's fascinating. All of these solutions are from seventh century. Just mm. people are not paying attention and understand that the Sharia is a method to produce knowledge. We got to look at it as a methodology. The answers, we can find the answers, but we have to use our analytical abilities mm. and the rigor of what produced the greatest intellectual minds in Muslim history. Ibn Qudama and Shirazi and, you know, Tabari, all of these great scholars uh, that, that wrote in Usul and so forth. So, so then we go to the other one is the marriage contract. Hmm. Scholars said that the wife is re- entitled to sheltering clothing. Plus, you may be responsible to provide domestic person to help her mm-hmm. with the domestic chores. Some scholars said it's absolutely required. Other scholars said only if she was accustomed to that lifestyle that she had people to help her around the house. So we say in Sharia Wiz is that if you believe in this reading of the Muslim marriage contract and your wife for 20 years clothed, fed, took care of you and your parents and did all of these things, and you never compensated her for mm. those services, you probably owe her. And you can acknowledge that debt as well in your will, and that gets paid from the gross estate plus her one-eighth. Muslim women in Iran, in their reform movement, have used this as a reform in the Iranian family law. Mm. They created a cause of action called Ujrat al-Mithil, 
and they say, you're responsible to maintain me during marriage, food, shelter, and clothing. And during marriage, you didn't live up to your obligations, brother. You owe me for what you didn't pay me over the time. So you can try to seek that compensation. So there are solutions. Our tradition works. And, and we're trying to bring these solutions on the Sharia Wiz platform. Now, uh, Hibba, we're going to get to your point now. I want to just uh, push back and, and, and question something on Ujrat al-Mithr uh, for the simple reason that if someone comes and mops up my house and walks away, we never agreed. So I don't know him anything. Now, hypothetically, wouldn't Ujrat al-Mithr have to be something agreed upon in advance? Yes. Right? Now, uh, that, that, now, if you look, Ujrat al-Mithil was a solution for post-divorce alimony under Iranian law. It has recently been repealed. I think it was repealed like seven or eight months ago or a year ago. And people are using unjust enrichment under their civil code as a way to compensate wife. Because the issue here was, is that under Islamic law, we don't have a post-divorce alimony theory. Yeah. So this was their attempt to go back to Ujrat al-Mithil. And because our situation here is we are making this consensual. Yeah. So in other yeah. words, in the will, he's not obligated. It's if he has that sense of a moral and religious obligation that, you know what, she did all that stuff. I really okay. should make it up. So it is an at-will uh, element. Yeah. No, absolutely. Everything that we're talking about are options for Muslim Americans to study to decide under their particular circumstances and see if it's applicable to their situation. Uh, we, we do not take positions. We yeah. provide solutions. And uh, it would seem that, you know, maybe that's uh, this Ujrat al-Mithil concept may be something that uh, gets put into some fancy marriage contracts in advance, right? Absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's a good very point. That's a good point. Yeah. So uh, uh, you have a an alimony theory yeah. in your marriage contract, and you're relying on your culture and your heritage. You're not looking at second, yeah. and and it's far fit much fairer because uh, unlike alimony as we know it today, this is coming uh, uh, in an in an at will. Both parties are agreeing to it, and the man is receiving something, Absolutely. right? So he's in that service. Okay, Hiba, you had something to say? Yeah. So you know he he makes this amazing point of you know the marriage contract which is something i learned you know after taking on this project so if you think about it if if i were to get married right now right um you know what is the point of the marriage contract is it is it just you know sort of a technicality and i don't care what it says because i'm basically gonna go through you know uh divorce court if it happens i mean Everybody has to sort of look at their entire life and, 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 and be authentic to themselves, right? I got married 25 years ago, alhamdulillah. And back then, the mu'akhar was, you know, probably the average back then was like $5,000, you know? Mm. I, I actually know people who didn't get married because they would fight over the mu'akhar back in my day. Um, so if you think about it, what is that? So if I wanted to really follow Islamic law, and technically, if, if I got uh, you know, I was bleh, but I was gonna go get divorced right now. My husband could hold up my marriage contract and be like, "This is all I owe her." So, you know, when I think about that, I'm thinking, "Wow, we aren't really honoring our tradition." In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah commands us to do contracts. You know, and and the reason why is because it's 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 about being accountable to each other 
for what we agree to, you know, as you said. So what I think is really important and the whole point of, of Sharia Wiz and why he called it Sharia uh, Wiz instead of inheritance law or something like that was because he, the objective is to actually do more uh, documents that force people to really look deeply into this obligation that Allah commands us on in different points of the Quran, which is to, to be people of our word, right? So yes, I got married 25 years ago. I have, uh, um, I actually have a, a really great contract, alhamdulillah, with my husband. But if I, if my ma'akhar was small, what Abid is saying is we can rewrite it. And actually we should, we should rewrite it, right? Like now that we're, you know, alhamdulillah, wealthier than we were when we first got married, I have to look out for myself because what Abid is seeing in his law practice is that people are going to court and fighting and spending thousands of dollars when the whole point of doing a contract is to avoid that. So it's not just about redoing your um, your marriage contract within your will, but you should actually just look at your entire life as, am I adhering to everything Allah has asked me to do? Yeah. And and I think that once you come to that submission point, you'll see that the inheritance law is a, is a natural uh, consequence to that entire directive. And. Uh People spend, because emotions are involved in marriage, people spend uh, very little time on that piece of paper, which is the marriage contract. They usually look at what is the mahar right, right up front. And usually 95% of the time, that's all people care about, that that's written down, the mahar right up front. And then some people, they put the, the mu'akhar as a tradition, right? Not actually knowing the legal value of it and the implications related to inheritance. They may have no clue that that is actually one of the solutions to take care of a woman since inheritance will not give her much. And here's one of the beauties of it. By not giving, by having a small amount of inheritance to the wife, it actually forces the man to grant her something while he's alive, right? Exactly. Right? Which forces him to trust her and value this marriage a lot more. Because if say, hey, it's all mine, only when I croak, she's gonna get something then there is a, it's it, you don't have to trust her all right at that point right whereas when it's a matter of uh giving granting her wealth some of from your wealth while you're alive is really putting a lot more uh, uh, pressure in a sense and 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 weight on the on keeping this marriage as is because i'm already giving you this right i'm co committed to you because as we know inheritance if if there's a divorce she doesn't get anything right so she's out of it completely so while she, so what, when you're forced to give it while she's alive, it also really forces you to keep up this marriage because you're paying that either way, right? So that's actually one of the maybe secondary uh, psychological wisdoms of why the uh, inheritance uh, for a woman has been for a wife has been uh, decreased, right? It's very little actually, right? So to force a man to do it while you're alive, while you're sharing life. No. Well, well, also, as I've said, women that, are taken care of, right? Like, I yeah. don't have to work. Yeah. I don't have. I don't have to be the the breadwinner. I don't. You know, my if I, if if suddenly, you know, I don't. I can't work. It's fine. My dad will take care of me. My husband or my brother. Um, yeah. I know it's patriarchal and that's hard for people to swallow. But they should actually look at it the reverse way, which is like, I'm supposed to. Be, I'm a queen. I'm supposed to be taken care of. I, I've never understood how you can actually uh, cover someone's uh, expenses and then have a negative reaction to that, right? So that means all the well, because it's not saying that you're not allowed to earn. Sharia never said you're not allowed to earn. Sharia simply says that 
certain expenses no. have to be covered by a man in your family, right? Let's now turn to the second most common issue. We talked about the inheritance of the wife. Let's go to the next one, uh, Professor Abbott, that you've been dealing with and you had to come with answers for. Uh, the, the, the next one, which is um, a bit complicated and um, our solution is not perfect um, and we're, we're, we're still inquiring. It's about your daughter receiving half the share of your son. Um, and the, the situation is for, 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 for listeners to understand um, is that there was a, there, the particular reason the Quranic fixed shares take into account the Muslim or the Islam uh, life system and, and how it worked. And the way it worked is, yes, it was patriarchal. It was gendered. But there were different financial obligations based on gender. So um, when, when a brother receives double the share of his daughter, of his sister, his sister gets her money free and clear. She has no obligation to use that to support her children, to support her parents, to support her siblings or anyone. It's her money. She's entitled by operation of law, by divine directive, you need to provide her food, shelter, and clothing and take care of her. The brother, on the other hand, he's the one who has an obligation to pay a mahar, an obligation to support his wife, an obligation to support his children, an obligation to pay to support his parents, an obligation to, to support his grandparents. So we have which everybody misses is that in every fiqh book you have a section called nafaqat al-aqarib and in nafaqat al-aqarib in the u.s you only have a claim as a son or as a child to sue your dad or to sue your mom your father can't sue you for support your mother can't sue you for support your brother can't sue you for support your sister can't sue you for support well under islamic law they can because it comes under that rubric. So when you look at those variables, you can understand the differential. But truth be told is today, economic structures, because now we have modernity has basically overhauled the economic structures and the, um, the, the, the mode of production of, of wealth in, in society. So now a situation is that women, Muslim women, are probably working and making more money than their husbands. Uh, Muslim men have no, they don't do these obligations. Number one, they don't have the obligation under New Jersey law or, or any state law for that matter. So the, 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 the structures change. The dynamic of the extended family has disappeared. No longer do we have extended family. Now we have the nuclear family. So you're not care, you don't really care about your parents anymore. You're just worried about your wife and your kids. You don't care about your siblings. You don't care about your aunt that is in, you know, Alexandria and is poor and you should really be supporting her. Your wife will be saying, why are you sending money to your aunt in Alexandria? I want to buy that nice uh, bag. So, so these are situations that uh, we have to take into account when we look at these differentials. Therefore, what we've done in Sharia is, is say, under Islamic law, currently what the status is, is you can give your son, uh, your daughter, equal share or even more. But the other heirs have to consent. 
And under Egyptian law, under classical Islamic law, this consent must take place after death, not during lifetime. So that's a situation that we're still toiling with and talking to scholars and doing research to find out if giving consent, if the children are adults and they consent to the decrease of their share in favor of their sister would be valid under Islamic law during the father's or mother's lifetime. The second situation that we're still exploring, it is the law of the land in Egypt, but it's not the mainstream position. The mainstream position is that when you have control over one third of your estate and you can give it to anyone, but not an Islamic heir. Yeah. Egyptian law and Al-Azhar issued a bunch of fatwas allowing you, like the Jafari school, to leave more up to one third to your wife, to your daughter, to your child. So we're toiling with this particular question because it is valid and legal in Egypt. But in the classical tradition, we haven't found any authority for that. See, um, go ahead. You want to finish? So, your so the solution that we have here that is temporary is that if you say you want your son and your daughter to receive equal share, your will will say the following. It has a, a paragraph that says, son, you know that I love all my children equally. And you know that during my lifetime, I, I, I asked you to give your sister when I die equal share to you. But you are not obligated to do that. Under Islamic law, it's up to you. I hope when I die, you consent. But again, it's not your obligation. So that has been the, the, the solution that we've created. It's not perfect, but it's the best under the current uh, fiqh that we have. So it's in essence a promise to give some sadaqah to your sister, his sister, right? Exactly. 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 Now, now this the one on the the matter of the wife to me has value uh as an issue because usually wives when their husbands pass away they're in a phase of their life where they're not hireable they don't have an extended family and so they truly do have a haja they have a need right uh to to pay their uh food rent whatever okay uh, bills, etc., that um, uh, is is a serious situation. The matter of the the daughter not receiving half is almost a um, uh, there. The, 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 there's much less of a financial case there to be made, because, like you said, most likely she'll be married and she'll be taken care of by her husband. He'll be married and he'll be taking care of a wife, right? So this, to me, uh, and of course, maybe there are one-off cases, the issue of the daughter and the son is more of a uh, political correct uh, type of uh, uh, approach. That's how I sort of view it because I don't necessarily see how anyone can miss the idea of the aggregate where, where wealth, if you look at uh, uh, the, what you just said, is that you're going to receive half, but you're paying nothing. Whereas he's paying, he's, the, the brother receives double. He's paying so much, right? So the word for that is the aggregate. Sharia looks at the aggregate of where your wealth comes in and out, right? And I don't think that that concept is hard for anybody to understand, even the children themselves, right? They can clearly understand that and understand its fairness. So, uh, True. Um, yeah. But there, there could be situations uh, where you are concerned uh, about this and you can solve them 
You can yeah. solve them by this particular promise, or you can solve them by giving assets during your lifetime. Now, there is another solution that has absolute validity under Islamic law that we haven't implemented because it's a bit complex to automate. And it's probably going to be, we're going to be launching also a Sharia compliant trust. So that will be live in, in end of July, beginning of August. But under the concept of waqf, which we, we will discuss a bit later, there is a public waqf, uh, a public endowment. And then there's uh, what we call al-waqf al-dharri, al-waqf al-ahli. And historically, you find that you can create a, a private waqf and put your children and the children's children as the beneficiaries of that waqf. And you could specifically say they share equally. Yeah. And they're, that's they're, legitimate. Uh, they're, oh, they're owners. They own. They're owners that. and yeah. they share the benefit that comes out yeah. of the waqf equally. Yeah. So, so there are solutions even in the situation of a gender equality yeah under the Sharia that have been in place over more than a thousand years. Yeah, so that's, that is the uh, easy part of the solution. The hard part of the solution is having the money, right? Having the money, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> true. True. so we've, we've checked off now the masail of the wife, the daughter. Now I want to shift to a different one, which is not going to be within the Muslim community, but it's one that some of the atheists attack us on, and that is the masala of the when the denominator, it, it, the numerator is greater than the denominator or al-rad, uh, or sorry, al-awl, in which uh, the, the fractions will end up being more than the pi. And that happens maybe on only a few circumstances, right? And so can you explain to people what they're talking about, what these atheists are attacking the Quran for and saying Surah An-Nisa was wrong and how we explain to them what is the purpose of the verses of Surah An-Nisa, you know, the general purpose as opposed to yeah. the specific every mas'al is covered. Yeah. Well, first we, we were talking fractions and in those rare circumstances that every single person with a fraction is going to be a survivor. Mm -hmm. And for these atheists, what they need to do was to thank the Quran for the creation of algebra. Yeah. We create, the Muslims created algebra to sort out the Rad and Awad. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so there's, there's some, uh, some logic here. Um, so Rad basically uh, is the return uh, to the uh, estate, whether uh, to add, to increase. And Al-Awad is to just simply um, uh, adjust the shares proportionate to those percentages. Yeah. It's a really simple thing. It's, it's literally flipping the denominator and the nominator and you're yeah. done. So, yeah. so that isn't an illogic. It's a, it's a situation that under the Quran, you have to have all of these particular variables and survivors to, uh, to, to, to survive at the same time. You have to make the adjustment. That does not undermine the moral message or the uh, coherence of the uh, fixed share Islamic inheritances. And the way I've always answered it is number one, Quran has always come to you with the general principles Absolutely. and then the ulama, sahaba, the salaf have extracted for us the unique cases. In this case, I think it came in the time of Sayyidina Ali that he is the one who came with that idea of flipping the numerator and denominator. Yeah. 
Yes. And the, if people don't understand what we mean, what we're saying is that certain people live, there's nobody to inherit the, the remainder. So you end up with a fraction, let's say, of 28 shares over 27. Exactly. Something like that, right? So someone uh, receives, let's say, one out of 27. Another person receives three out of 27, five out of 27. But the total is like 28 out of 27. So what did Sayyidina do? He said, make 28 the new denominator for each person. So now instead of one out of 27, you're one out of 28. Instead of three out of 27, you're three out of 28. Now, the second point here is that the Surah An-Nisa has come to distribute the proportions of the inheritance, not the amount of the inheritance. So nothing in the Quran said you deserved three out of 27. No, you deserve that proportion relative to everybody else, right? And everybody so, you're, exactly. so the, the ratio is preserved. Right? Absolutely. I did two videos. I did a video for Rudd and for Al-Awal. Oh, good. Uh, three, four minute videos. You can go to Shia's uh, um, YouTube channel and you can watch. Okay, good. That's good. Um, okay, so those are the masail that I wanted to cover on the question of fairness. So we looked at submission, we looked at fairness, and we looked at how the sharia, it, how there, are, there can be uh, uh, concerns that are valid in sharia. I recognize them and say, no, I'm going to recognize them and other masail. We looked at this awl issue and how the um, uh, people have questioned the Quran and attacked it and how it's really easily dismissed, swatted away like a fly. And now we go to something else. How can we use, as Muslims, emphasize the use of al-wasiyyah to build our institutions? And number one, let's, before we get into that, recognize the importance of institutions. I think that Muslims, uh, read our, we read our history and we see individuals. We see Imam al-Nawawi. We see Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi. We see Imam al-Ghazali. So we drive to be individuals. We don't realize, however, every single one of those individuals was standing on top of a solid institution. Imam al-Ghazali, where did he teach? In an institution. Imam al-Nawawi, all those madaris of Syria were, in, were awqaf and institutions. Okay, The different schools that scholars, uh, that funded the scholars, that, that housed them, that housed their students, that allowed them to write all those books uh, day in and day out and not ever have to peel an onion or cut a sli loaf, uh, slice of bread, right? Because of they were taken care of. Uh, the governance, governments of the Ottomans and the Abbasids and the Mamarik were all institutions. So we need to, and it's not, it's not fun because uh, uh, role models are human beings and we're attracted to their biographies. I want to hear about Salah al-Din and, and about Nur al-Din al-Zanki, but I'm not, I'm going to really shut off a podcast that's going to talk to me about an institution, right? Because that's not, there's no visual for an institution. There's no story for an institution. It's sort of dry, slow, and it's all about administration. And it's very, you know, there's nothing uh, appealing. However, our success is going to come through institutions, not individuals. So that's really the first thing that we need to talk about. Hiba, you were saying that you had something about, you wanted to talk about, make some mentions about that yeah so if you know if you think about it and 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 actually a lot of my um i do a lot of interfaith volunteer work as well and it's something i observed in the um christian tradition but especially in the jewish tradition 
um, that those that are successful support all, you know, institutions. And when I look at our own um, Oma, you know, so to speak here in America, it's really fragmented. People tend to only want to donate to what they truly, you know, want to follow or they just want to give for this cause. Um, and as I was mentioning to Abbott, I, I was a little shocked because, you know, there's been a couple of, you know, devastating things that have happened to individuals in our community in the last couple of days. But I, I saw, MashaAllah, that literally in three different instances, we raised over a million dollars on launch good in a, in a matter of days for these people. So we, so we have the wealth. And yet if I, you know, if I said to somebody, Hey, you know, I, I actually love Aisha prime. Well, did you consider donating to Baraka Inc, which is, you know, her private sort of, you know, initiative to, to help African-American women um, or Safina society, right. Um, that's educating people worldwide now. Um, and they don't really know about these things, right? So they're 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 okay with giving millions of dollars to Zaytuna or Yakin because they have you know celebrity uh, imams who talk great game um, and are are legit. Uh, but I also just wanted to remind people that we have a responsibility to really look at all these other areas. Um, this was actually something I introduced also at my own masjid. I, I served on the board of ICJ for years. And one of the things um, that I introduced to the board was this concept of ICJ, mashallah, we have so many South Asians that are very, very, uh, you know, wealthy and, and are doctors and donate. We have a lot of Arab doctors and we would have this huge Sadaqajaria pot. And what I would tell them was, you know, how about, you know, the, the masjid that are in Newark or, you know, in Camden? And we, we did. We actually donated $10,000 to help uh, the Atlantic City Masjid after Hurricane Sandy because they had no roof, you know. And, and this outreach to other masjid or, you know, some of the women's shelters uh, that just don't have the right people or the right marketing budget to, to ask for money just doesn't exist. So I, I bring this up as a point of saying to Muslims, if you have wealth, you have to also think about giving away that Sadaqa Jediya, not just when people ask for it, but think about what would benefit everyone and the whole, right? So think about, okay, someone had an accident or someone's dying of cancer and you want to help them out 20 years in advance. But what about helping Safina society? You know, how about when I write my will, I leave Safina Society $5,000 or $10,000 in my will, which is, believe it or not, that's why it have been a, you know, put this one third pocket of do whatever you want to do with your money. You know, we could choose to give it to someone who is not part of our inheritance pool in our family, but we could also give it to somebody or an institution that's really affected my life in a positive way. And now I want to leave that behind as a Sadaqa Jadia to benefit others. And that's, just sort of like what I love about this product is like, I really want people to also think about their wealth as a continuous, you know, uh, benefit to others and not just themselves. One of the things that is very important to talk about is that institutions are always greater than that individual, right? Now, everyone's going to have certain red lines, right? Uh, but provided, and, and we should 
those red lines should be very broad in Islam, Ahl Sunnah and Sharia, those lines are broad. Provided, and, and people have to take a mature look because many people say, well, oh, I don't support that individual because on you know March 3rd, 2012, so-and-so made a tweet that said such and such, and he's part of that. But that's such a small-minded way of looking at it. Again, everyone has the red lines, okay? And those red lines, according to Ahl-Sunnah, should be very broad, okay? To the point that it's not really, shouldn't be fathomable that a uh, Muslim organization will cross those lines. Uh, but we have to be mature when we look at institutions and realize that they are far more than one person here or there. And that's uh, a mindset that people should should be, you know, right, realize that they should not allow shaitan to get involved and say, oh, that one person did that, right? So uh, if you look at an institution as like a, a human life, human beings have some sins, right? Every one of us committed a sin. So likewise, every institution is going to put up, you know, one of the results of their work will be something you don't like. But overall, institutions are why people succeed and why we succeed. And the more our institutions are financially independent and financially strong, then we could continue pushing on this message. So the idea, the link here is using the wasiya, the one-third, la wasiya liwarid, the one-third that's going to go outside the inheritors for institutions. Absolutely. Yes, I highly recommend that because yeah. uh, having having worked in fundraising, you know, for years, I I've, I've just seen a lot of institutions that were incredible and couldn't thrive for years because because of that lack of funding. Yeah. All right, so that I've covered everything that I've wanted to cover. Uh, submission and fairness and the uh, bequests. Now let's look at uh, what do you want to say about the website? I think the website is very easy to use. Yeah, I would like to say just a, a real brief uh, word yeah. about, about the bequest. Mm. So in, in, in Surah Al-Munafiqoon, um, it, it, it says, My Lord, if only you held me back a little while, mm. I would have given in charity and mm. been among the virtuous. So, so this, this issue of our charitable giving, our sadaqajariya, our obligation, it is replete all over in the Qur'an. So we, we need listeners to understand that our institution building is directly linked to our charitable contributions. Um, and it's directly linked to building the Muslim civil society that is morally accountable to Muslims, to its neighbors, and building institutions that become independent and can produce knowledge outside of political allegiances, outside of economic allegiances. That was the genius of the waqf, that it establishes independence from the temporal powers. And that uh, started to d d diminish with the rise of the Ottoman Empire and in the 16th, 17th century, when they started to basically nationalize al-awqaf when they started to have a larger bureaucracy to, to keep up with Western modernity and the changes. Uh, so we got to keep that. The other thing that I want to talk about is that charitable giving in Islam is God-centric. It's unlike in other cultures. We give fi sabilillah. We give lillah to God or for God. So understand it's not our money. When the Quran talks, وَالَّذِينَ فِي أَمْوَالِهِمْ حَقٌ مَعْلُومٌ it's not our money. This mm. is, we owe it. So don't, it's not you're doing me a favor. This mm. is your obligation to take care of your charitable uh, areas. So, so my final point is that the waqf was 
an institution that actually helped build communities, build cities, build towns. The history of the Waqf goes back to the early time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, if you want to look at the Waqf, you find almost 70% of, uh, of, of property in the Ottoman territories was under a Waqf management. Wow. Wow. Um, if you look at um, Algeria, um, you, you find in Algeria, it was almost one half. The first thing the French colonialists did is destroy the Waqf institutions to use the land for their capitalist redevelopment and destroy history and destroy buildings. One seventh in Iran was, was under Waqf. One fifth of Egypt's property was under Waqf. One third in Tunisia. So, so you could understand that the Waqf establishment, while it was for rich people who would do it, but it was mainstreamed. Yeah. In Aleppo, 40% of the Waqfs that were registered were registered by Muslim women. In Cairo during Mamluk <coughs> time, 25% of the Waqfs that were established were by Muslim women. Mm. The Waqf was part of worship, part of your salah, your, your, your belief in God. So, so that's one thing that we have to get back to institutionalizing charity in Islam to be part of building the Islamic civilization of the past and maintaining economic equity and safety net for the poor, but it has to begin here. We cannot build institutions, Muslim American institutions, without all of us revisiting our obligation for sadaqajariya and using our end of life arrangements to fund the sadaqajariya so that we continue to build the moral muslim subject in in the us so that's that's a point that i just wanted to uh, to do that and it's important even from from a scholarly perspective historians are examining endowment documents to find social history of islamic societies to understand how they functioned how they lived, yeah. You know, an author, uh, Richard Van Leeuwen, is a, is a very interesting guy. He wrote a book, Waqfs and Urban Structures, focused on Damascus and Syria. It's crazy that you built the structure of Muslim cities based on political and economic control. You were able to have independence. So, so let's educate our community about the Waqfs and bring this noble tradition back to, to life. Hibby, you have some comments? Yeah, I just want to segue into what you said right before Abid gave that, that great, you know, Islamic history recap. Uh, so we, you know, while we are actually first developing, you know, the, the first round of uh, people who tried out Sharia Wiz, we actually came across that. A lot of people that we didn't even really imagine. I mean, big, big, big names that I don't want to name here for privacy reasons, but that are converts and have wealth. And they were like, well, I don't have Muslim heirs and I really don't know what to do with my money. And so like, we were like, did you think about leaving it behind, you know, for a masjid or, you know, you know, another institution? They were like, no, not really. So this is another reason why Sharia Wiz is great. Is that actually, uh, you know, if I go to a lawyer right now and I do my will, you know, he's going to be like, what do you want? Right. But Sharia Wiz brings you back to this moral structure of questioning and giving you time to really reflect on the fact that you are going to die. And this is you know, part of our uh, submission, right? Like understanding that I have to be responsible in my death 
And Sharia Wiz is also going to ask you, how do you want to be buried? You know, do you want to be buried, um, you know, a, a certain place with certain people? I mean, people don't want to talk about these things. I see it all the time in the masjid. You know, everybody comes scrambling in. Oh, I need a grave. Um, but the reality is that if we face our death and we sort of document it, we think about this and we think about what we want to leave behind, it, it is really, uh, it humbles us as people. Mm -hmm. And by the way, like one of the, the issues that actually came up that I, I didn't know was that organ donation is halal. It's not, you're not allowed to or, uh, donate your uh, sexual organs, uh, but you can do organ donation. And um, when we did this demo for, for Sheikha, Tamara Gray, uh, you know, she likes to call herself Anse, but I like to call her Sheikha. She, that was the first thing she asked. She was like, what do you say about, you know, organization? And we showed her the tool. She was like, okay, I just want to make sure it was correct. Um, so, you know, the thing is, is that we, this is a very well thought out product, but it's also designed to let Muslims look at their lives and, and reflect on everything and making that their responsibility and not something they just shove onto their kids or, you know, or their siblings when they pass, right? Which is also a very traumatic time. Um, and Sharia Wiz is the only tool in the entire, I want to say world, but, you know, I don't know. So I'm going to say the United States. And I know because we looked at our, you know, any, you know, one or two competitors that are out there that allows you to go and make as many edits as you want for the rest of your life. So you go see the entire document for free. You do not pay a dime. You do the entire thing. You look at it. You could think about it, go back to it. When you print it, you have to pay. And it's only $199 just for the will. But you can actually edit it next week, next year, you know, a year from now. And it doesn't cost you anything. It's privatized. We have the most secure server out there. Um, but it also allows you to declare your intention, right? We all know, like, if I intend to pray and I die before I pray, Allah counts that for me. So I encourage everybody to declare their intention to go register for the product, check it out. You know, even if you don't complete it yet, which you should, because it is a fun, you know, you have already started the process of doing your, your intention and your fun and, and you will be rewarded for that. And then you have as much time as you want to actually complete it. But I think that's uh, a really important part to highlight. Question. International or USA only? USA only. I mean, this okay. covers uh, your assets here because in, yeah. in, in most of our Muslim countries, as you know, it's a thick, it's it's an intestacy system. So if I if if I have property in Egypt, it's going to be distributed according to Islamic law in Pakistan, in Palestine, wherever it is. It is here where our if we don't have a will your property will not be distributed according to Islamic law and will not be distributed according to your wishes so, to make those determinations. Okay, so a couple in Toronto, for example, that document from Sharia Wiz will not be applicable for a couple, let's say, in Toronto. Uh, no, but the, what okay. if I was somebody looking for a Sharia compliant will in Toronto, I may do the Sharia Wiz one and take it to my lawyer in Toronto. Adjust it. Provide the, the, the Sharia compliant solutions. I see. So they can they can utilize those solutions yeah. for their estate plan in Canada. I want to before we close out. I want to go back to the waqf and how the waqf is. Uh, I always look at the ayah of the Quran. In Allah yuhibbu ladina yuqatiluna fi sabili saffan ka'annum bunyanum marsus. We love the individual. We love the idea of you know the, how the Sahaba, the ragtag army, and everyone come on in. A Bedouin come off the you know off of his animal straight to the war, right? 
and many Muslims feel that sort of an organized, disciplined, administrative, with a little bit of a bureaucracy even, uh, is against the barakah and the free flow ways of the Sahaba and the Muslims. But this ayah actually poses the opposite, that he loves institutions that are like... Uh, you're a human being, but you're acting as if you are a brick. You don't move forward or back. This is exactly where you move. Your your colleagues do that job. You don't do this job, etc. So that's one ayah in Surah Tasaf that I love that uh, to justify and recognize the value of solid institutional work where everyone has a role and we work like an, like an almost like a military, like a building. Secondly, for some people in case we've been saying waqf, 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 and they don't even know what we're saying hypothetically because we try to reach that sure. biggest audience. Let me give you a quick uh, understanding of what it is. A waqf is a set of assets and wealth that is not owned by an individual. And it is uh, listed for the purposes for which this money is to be used. So for ex to give a simple example, one of the simplest awqaf in Morocco, which is a country we talked about earlier, yes. is the Quran reciters after Maghrib and, and, Fet, uh, and Fajr. If you notice that all those masajid have group uh, Quran reciters that's led by one person. And that person receives a small stipend just to show up every Maghrib and every Isha uh, Fajr, Fajr and Maghrib to lead that circle. And it takes him like 30 minutes of his time. So he will receive a small stipend to do this from some wealthy people. will have maybe purchased an apartment. Regular people live in the apartment. They pay rent to that endowment. And that little check goes to that person to do that. Recipe. That's just a very simple example, right? Of when you said like 50% of some lands were awqaf so that people should understand that it's not 50% of the property being used for that purpose. It's people are living in those homes, normal life, maybe renting out a store, but he's paying rent to the authority the, that administers that endowment and uses that endowment for a certain purpose. One of the biggest institutions was the hospitals. The healthcare was all endowment. You walk in, you get treated, right? How? Because the wealthy will have kicked off an endowment and smart people invest the wealth wisely and make more money from that. And all of that goes to uh, the healthcare, the hospital. That's just an example. Another thing about the West in terms of we love the idea of democracy, right? We love the idea that the people have a role in their life. And we don't like the idea of kings and sultans, right? However, let's not be so superficial and look at just because your political order Yes, it was not democratic. It had kings and sultans. However, the state had far less reach into the lives of real regular people than the, the state does today. So today, yes, I'm electing state officials every, every uh, few months. There's an election, right? However, the reach of the state and the reliance upon the state is far greater in today's world than it was in the past. And look at, look at all these institutions that were run by the people ran these things, not states, right? So that's one thing to not be so superficial and say, oh, you had a sultan, no democracy, he controlled your own life. He didn't, right? True. Now, what, one thing uh, to, to, uh, to add on this. Yeah. Um, there was a hospital created in a waqf, waqf Mansur al-Qalawan, al -Qalawan, mm. 
created this hospital in Egypt in the 13th century, and it survived for 600 years in Egypt. Wow. Subhanallah. And it only, it fell in disrepair in the early 1900s, and I think it was destroyed sometime in the 1950s or 1960s. Subhanallah. 600 years, a hospital wow. providing service for free as a charitable wealth. Subhanallah. That's some barakah right there in the wealth. Uh-huh. Subhanallah. So uh, with that, uh, any closing statements? Because I've covered everything that I wanted to cover. Um, I, I want to thank you very much for uh, inviting us to, uh, to your amazing podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, my and pleasure. It, was, it was an enjoyable uh, uh, conversation. And uh, we, we hope that people can uh, look at Sharia Wiz as a project about Islam in America and to understand that we can be the planned giving virtual planned giving department for all mm -hmm. our charities and our institutions and our mosques and uh, direct people to think of their end of life issues because we have to worry not only about our wealth but we also provide a sharia compliant living will about mm -hmm. uh, life support about dnrs we also offer an organ donation form if you wish that is sharia compliant and a general power of attorney Resolve these issues so that your family doesn't have to be running to court and people fighting who are going to manage it and that your wishes are fulfilled at the time of your death and you comply with the Fard and Surat al-Nisa yeah. as a, a divine directive for you to, to devolve your estate according to the Quran. And the details are very important. Uh, fights in families happen over details, right? Little things like DNR, do not resuscitate. It's a big deal if you don't have that. You never know. You could be in a car accident uh, at the age of 45 and all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, you have to deal with that. So it, ju it just happened to Omari Gray. Right. Like and, you know, yeah. you know the, he's a, he was a big figure in uh, the DN, uh, the, the D.C. metro area. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, subhanAllah, like, you know, they they actually, you know, whatever decision they made, they pulled his his uh his rustation and then they put it back. So, I mean, I think it's just past Ramadan. I, I had three deaths in my family and it, it was age 22, 32 and, you know, 90, right. You, you don't know when you're going to die. So this is yeah. just something that I encourage everybody to look into whatever product you wind up going with. Yeah. But, um, I, I encourage everybody to just follow their Dean. Not to be morbid or anything uh, or pessimistic, but, we are heading into July and August. There is no end in sight and no vaccine in sight for the coronavirus. Yeah, so chances of death are a little bit higher. So sign up for your will. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm sure you're not going to use coronavirus for your, uh, uh, your marketing, Hiba, are you? Yeah. <laughs> no. no. But anyway, Jazakumullah, Khairan. Thank you, you all much, so much. Uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Shetty, for being my teacher, too. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's, my, it's my pleasure, my honor. And again, thank you, all for, uh, thank you for putting the product together and for sparking people to think about uh, this subject and this important topic. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna al-insana la fiya khus. Illa al-lazina amanu wa aminu al-salihat wa tawasaw bil-haq. وتواصوا بالصبر والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله